Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dan Albin, Senior Attorney at the Institute for Justice. We will discuss his work at the Institute for Justice and the complaint he just filed in Brown v. TSA. So welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, and uh, for listeners who might not be familiar with the Institute for Justice, uh, I wonder if you could start by just talking a little bit about what it is and what it does and what your role is there. Sure. The Institute for Justice is a nonprofit public interest law firm. We were founded in 1991. Uh, we call ourselves the nation's law firm for liberty. Uh, we are an explicitly libertarian, but little l libertarian, meaning not affiliated with a libertarian party, but philosophically libertarian uh, law firm that brings cases um, challenging violations of people's constitutional rights. And we sue the government when it violates people's rights at the federal, state, and local level. Uh, we've been doing that almost 30 years. We've had a number of cases go up to the U.S. Supreme Court. We even have a case being argued tomorrow uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, that's Espinoza, a case about school choice. We litigate in four main areas. Those areas are free speech, property rights, economic liberty, and school choice. And I'm a senior attorney at IJ. I've been here for almost 10 years. I primarily litigate in areas of property rights and economic liberty. Um, in property rights, I litigate cases involving eminent domain abuse and civil forfeiture. In uh, economic liberty cases, I challenge uh, occupational licensing and other sort of anti-competitive laws and regulations that keep people from being able to earn a living. Great. Well, so Dan, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the case you just filed in Brown v. TSA. So what happened in this case and why is it the kind of claim or case that IJ files? So this is a case uh, about civil forfeiture and specifically about the seizure of cash from a traveler at an airport. And this is the sort of thing that we know happens every day uh, at airports across America. And we were really upset about it because we think people's Fourth Amendment rights are being violated on a regular basis, and people are being victimized by these civil forfeiture practices and seizure practices used by TSA and DEA to separate uh, Americans from their hard-earned cash without ever charging them with a crime and without ever convicting them with a crime. Uh, this specific case uh, that we filed was on behalf of uh, Rebecca Brown and her father, Terry Rowland. Terry is a 79-year-old retiree who lives near Pittsburgh. He was a railroad engineer. Um, he had to retire in 1994 because of uh, injuries. And so he's been getting railroad retirement benefits since then. And Terry's parents, Rebecca's grandparents, uh, grew up during the Great Depression, and they didn't really trust banks. So they had a habit of um, cashing uh, paychecks and retirement checks and pension checks and taking a portion of the money and putting it in an envelope and hiding it in the basement of the family home. And because Terry grew up with them, he adopted that practice, too. And, uh, you know, he um, worked as a railroad engineer for many years. But uh, in his retirement, he eventually ended up moving back into the family home. And 
since 2005, he was uh, living there and doing the same thing with the railroad retirement checks he was receiving that his parents had done with their um, paychecks and pension checks for many years. And sometimes he'd even see the envelopes that his mother had had tucked away. Um, Terry uh, is getting quite, um, he's having a number of health problems and he's having some cognitive issues and he was struggling to take care of the family home. So he decided to downsize and just move into a small one bedroom apartment and packed up all his belongings, including these envelopes full of cash and moved everything to the apartment. And as he began to unpack, he started getting very nervous that he had all this cash um, in a one bedroom apartment where there wasn't a very good place to hide it. And he just started putting it in a, in a Tupperware container about the size of a shoebox. And after a while um, realized this is not a good way to store my money. Um, somebody could break into the apartment and see it and, and um, you know, my life savings would be gone. So while his daughter Rebecca was visiting him over the weekend, she lives in Boston, uh, she, he told her about um, his concerns and also mentioned that he needed help um, with his dental care and um, a variety of other issues that he was struggling to take care of. And they agreed that she would take uh, power of attorney and open up a joint banking account with the money to um, help care for him. And because they decided to do all of this over the weekend and Rebecca had an 8 a.m. flight on Monday morning, um, she didn't have a way to deposit the money in, in a bank in Pittsburgh before she left. So she took the money with her to the Pittsburgh airport. And as she was going through TSA screening, uh, her bag got pulled aside and uh, TSA agents started asking her, you know, why do you have all this money and you know, what's it for? What's it from, et cetera. And she sort of calmly explained what it was for and what it was from. She had the night before she had Googled uh, whether it was legal to travel uh, with cash and found out that if you're traveling domestically, you can travel with any amount of cash. And so she felt, you know, like, you know, she wasn't doing anything wrong. It was her dad's money. She was just uh, taking it to Boston in order to deposit it in a bank there. Well, the TSA screeners seemed to think this was a very suspicious amount of cash. Um, they demanded her ID, they demanded her travel documents, they started photocopying things, they called the Pennsylvania State Troopers to the screening area. And after about 30 minutes of being questioned by, you know, three different groups of TSA agents and, and um, Pennsylvania State Troopers and the supervisor, they finally let her go um, and, and let her go with her money and her bag. And so she went to uh, her gate and at the gate, she was approached by the same Pennsylvania State Trooper with a DEA agent. And that DEA agent asked to see the money, interrogated her again for a fourth time and then said that he wanted to speak to Terry, her father. Now, she was catching an 8 a.m. flight, and it was about 7 a.m. when this happened. And she told him, you know, Terry's not going to be awake. He's going to be very confused. He's elderly. Um, he has cognitive issues. He's, he's going to be upset and confused and not able to answer your questions. But the agent insisted that she call him and put him on the phone. So then the DEA agent attempted to interrogate Terry at 7 in the morning, but he had just, he had been woken up by the call. And he was upset and confused. And eventually the DEA agent hung up and said, your stories don't match. I'm seizing all the cash. And he did. He took all of the money uh, that Terry had saved up over the years. It was 82000 uh, a little over $82,000. And, uh, you know, gave her a property receipt saying he had seized an indeterminate amount of currency. And that was that. He didn't arrest her. He didn't charge her with any crime. Terry wasn't uh, charged with anything. 
And uh, Rebecca was even able to, to make her flight. Um, she was the last person on the plane and was pretty humiliated by all of this happening in front of um, all the other passengers and passersby um, being treated like a criminal simply because she'd carried a large amount of cash uh, with her on a domestic flight, something that's perfectly legal. Um, Terry was very confused by what had happened. He was uh, panicked about what was going on with his daughter, but he couldn't reach her because the, the boarding gate closed shortly after she boarded the plane and then she was up in the air. So he left seven voicemail messages while she was uh, flying back to Boston, trying to find out what had happened to her, if she was okay, if she'd been arrested, if the police were doing something to her. And uh, finally, when she landed, she was able to, to call him and let him know that she was okay, but that the DEA had seized all of the cash. And that's basically where things stand today. The DEA sent a forfeiture notice to Terry and Rebecca in October, saying that it intended to permanently forfeit their money using civil forfeiture. Uh, there's no explanation for what crime it thinks they committed. There's a citation to a single statute, 21 USC 881, which is a sort of catch-all statute about the forfeiture of anything related to controlled substances. But we have no idea what the DEA thinks about the money, why they think it's connected to controlled substances in any way. We don't know whether they think it's the proceeds of a sale or whether it was going to be used to purchase controlled substances. Uh, frankly, I don't think they know that or have any opinion uh, on, on that because they don't need to um, develop a theory on that. They can just take your money and keep it, and it's up to you to try to get it back. And so we filed a lawsuit on behalf of Rebecca and Terry to challenge this attempted forfeiture of their money and also to um, challenge on a class level uh, DS DEA and TSA seizures of cash from travelers at airports without probable cause. Well, Dan, I mean, on what conceivable basis can the government do this? I mean, this just seems outrageous. How can the government take your money without charging you with anything? Well, that's unfortunately how civil forfeiture uh, works. It's, um, you know, it's something that we at IJ have been working to end since uh, the late 1990s. And um, we've been trying to bring as much public attention to it as possible. But it's a doctrine that allows law enforcement to seize property on the suspicion that a crime was committed and then to permanently forfeit that property, even if no one is charged or convicted of a crime. Um, based uh, on, a, on a minimal standard, preponderance of the evidence is the standard in uh, federal court. So just more likely than not. And typically the evidence that they will introduce to establish by a preponderance of the evidence that seized property is connected to a crime is, you know, in the officer's training and experience, uh, somebody fits the pattern of a drug courier because, um, you know, they're they were traveling from one known drug trafficking location to another. Any major city is a known drug trafficking location. They uh, were their trip was of a very short duration. In this case, you know Rebecca's you know was just there over the weekend visiting her father and other family members. And then they'll also say things about well, if the if the trip was purchased, if the tickets were purchased, um, you know, in a week or two before the flight, or if they were. Uh, if they were purchased with cash or if a flight was changed at the last minute or this, that, or the other thing, they'll say um, is indicative of the pattern of someone who is a drug courier. And based on that, they will attempt to forfeit someone's property. Very rarely do these cases actually go to court. 
90% uh, of them are resolved administratively, meaning they are forfeited administratively by the agency that seized the property. This is typically because um, people are confused by the system, aren't able to hire an attorney, aren't able to find a forfeiture attorney. And so they, they give up or default or file their papers in the wrong place or don't understand what they're supposed to do. But even if people do get the, pa the paperwork right, in the administrative process, um, it's being decided by the agency that seized your property. And they have complete discretion as to what to do in these cases. People are filing administrative petitions and they are not reviewable by courts, uh, according to um, current case law and, um, and the statutes that govern this. So as you can imagine, uh, very often these agencies do not rule in favor of the person who's filed the administrative petition and instead rule in favor of themselves and the person permanently loses their property. In the remaining 10% or so of cases that do actually go to court, uh, a high percentage of them settle. Typically, the government will offer someone who is represented by counsel um, a return of 50% of the money in, in exchange for dropping the case. So you, you, <laughs> you get half of your money back, but the government keeps the other half. Um, and then, of course, you have to pay your attorney usually out of what you've recovered. Um, and so very, very few of these cases actually go to um, trial and, and very rarely does the government actually have to, um, you know, make a showing of proof. And so because of that, they've adopted extremely loose standards for what constitutes first probable cause and then what they think is enough to satisfy the preponderance of the evidence. And, um, and so they do seizures just like this all over the country every day based on suspicions and hunches and the supposed training and experience of officers whose agencies get to keep the money that um, that is being forfeited. Well, so you've you've filed a bunch of claims in this action. I wonder if you could talk about the claims that are specific to to Brown. What do you think the strongest arguments are for her to get restitution of her father's money? And what conceivable basis, if any, did TSA or the DEA have for this seizure in the first place? Well, I, I'll address the, the second point first. I, I really don't think there is any conceivable basis uh, for the seizure that is, that is legitimate. I think the actual basis for the seizure uh, initially by TSA uh, and then permanently by DEA was the presence of the cash. Um, TSA has a threshold. Uh, we think it's about $10,000, and if uh, a TSA screener sees on an uh, X-ray image or cash in a bag that they're inspecting that appears to be $10,000 or more, they pull that bag aside, begin questioning the person, don't let them leave, don't let their bag uh, leave, and they call law enforcement. Um, we think that's unconstitutional. There's, um, there's no probable cause established just by the presence of cash and uh, multiple uh, federal courts have said that, that merely traveling with, with cash is not by itself a uh, probable cause. Um, DEA has a similar policy where um, if if someone is traveling through the airport with, we believe the amount to be $5,000 or more, uh, DEA thinks that's a suspicious amount of, of cash. And as I already mentioned, they can you know, rely on their officers' training and experience to say, oh, well, if you're at an airport, you're, you're traveling between two drug trafficking locations and various other things that fit the, the supposed profile of a drug courier. And so based on, you know, 
that that teeny little bit of information, they think they're justified in in seizing your your cash. Um, Rebecca has brought an individual claim for return of property because DEA violated her Fourth Amendment rights by seizing um, her cash, her father's cash, without uh, probable cause. We don't think um, there is probable cause in under these circumstances. And um, she's also brought uh, a Bivens claim uh, for compensatory damages she and, and her father have uh, against the, the DEA agent who, who did this uh, seizure without probable cause. Um, Terry has been, Terry has desperately needed to replace his teeth. That was the primary purpose for creating this new bank account so Rebecca could help him um, uh, arrange for dental care and pay for dental care. And he also needs to fix his truck. And he hasn't been able to do either of those things for the past five months since this happened in, in late August of 2019. And he's been, experienced a lot of pain and suffering because of that. Um, there's, there's other um, pain and suffering that they've experienced as a result of this. As you can imagine, losing your life savings is extremely stressful and, and um, upsetting. Uh, but you know, probably the greatest source of pain and suffering is, is Terry not being able to uh, pay for this dental care that he really uh, needs uh, so much at, at this point in his life. Um, and then we've we filed uh, three class claims against uh, TSA and DEA. And I, I don't know if you want me to talk about those now or um, or keep talking about Terry and Rebecca's case. No, sure. I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, like these class claims seem like a big part of the action because, I mean, this unconscionable story you tell about about Brown, I mean, it seems like this – is this something that happens a lot? I mean, how big a class are we talking about here? How frequently is the government taking people's money without having any reason to do so? Well, this is a class with – thousands of members. Uh, we don't know exactly how many. Um, we at IJ uh, handle civil forfeiture cases, and we've received dozens of calls about situations very similar to this. Unfortunately, many of them have contacted us too late after um, the, the time frame in which they could file their papers has expired, or um, they've already retained counsel, and so we've just sort of been in a consulting role. Um, so we haven't been able to file uh, a suit on behalf of someone until now um, because someone because Rebecca contacted us while um, while she was still in the time frame to file her her papers um, but we know this is something that goes on uh, quite commonly USA Today did a uh, a report on this in 2016 where they looked at just the 15 biggest airports the 15 busiest airports and they found that DEA had done over 5,200 seizures, uh, seizing over $200 million um, from travelers between 2006 and 2016. Now, that's not all airports. There's over 440 airports uh, in the United States that are you know, commercial airports that you could buy a ticket and take a flight on. And, um, and we believe DEA operates at, at almost all of them. So... Um, there are thousands of people out there who have had this happen to them. And we know that from, you know, the people who've reached out to us, from the attorneys we've been in touch with, from horror stories we've heard about, um, you know, through our network. But, um, you know, it's, it's a big group of people. And then TSA, um, 
you know, obviously is searching people every day as they go through airports. Now, those are uh, considered to be administrative searches. TSA is not authorized to do general law enforcement searches, general criminal investigations. TSA screeners are only authorized to check for things that would endanger transportation security. And that basically boils down to a list in TSA's regulations of uh, types of weapons, bombs, and incendiaries. And obviously, cash is, is not one of those things. Um, but nonetheless, um, we know TSA frequently does this at airports, at the screening station. When someone has what a TSA uh, agent considers to be an excessive or large amount of cash, they pull them aside, they keep them there, they keep their luggage, and they call law enforcement to the scene. And even though this is only a temporary seizure uh, by TSA, it still violates someone's rights, um, and it leads to typically DEA or some other agency showing up and seizing the cash from the traveler. So we brought claims, Fourth Amendment claims, challenging both of these seizure practices. And then we brought a separate statutory claim against TSA, an ultra-virus claim, because, uh, again, TSA is only charged with um, enforcing uh, transportation and protecting transportation security and not with general, um, general law enforcement or criminal investigations. And so uh, we are challenging their um, actions in excess of their authority, of their statutory authority, by you know, seizing cash, which doesn't pose a threat to transportation security, and then seizing the traveler who has the cash and conducting an investigation until law enforcement arrives. I think those, um, those actions are inappropriate under their statutory mandate and also uh, violate the Fourth Amendment. Well, so what are kind of the next steps in this case? Sort of where does it stand now and what do you see happening in the near future? Well, uh, when you sue the federal government, they have additional time to respond in a federal lawsuit. They have 60 days after they, they're served to file their answer or motion to dismiss. I would expect they would file a motion to dismiss, but you never know. Every now and again, they just file an answer. Um, so I expect we'll have briefing on a motion to dismiss. Um, I expect we'll also be trying to seek class discovery because, um, as I mentioned a, a little bit ago, we know there are thousands of class members, but we don't know exactly how many. And we'd like to establish, um, you know, a rough idea of the number, a better idea of the number of people in the class and also, um, you know, get more information about these policies and practices that TSA and DEA follow. So um, as soon as we're permitted to, under the, the local rules, we will begin seeking um, class discovery in order to certify our class, because as a class action with Rebecca and Terry as the named plaintiffs and a whole class of people who have or will have their cash seized at airports by TSA or DEA, um, we need to get the, the judge to certify the class as a class action. And in order to do that, we need to show that um, this class satisfies the, the requirements of a, a class action, the sort of uh, typicality, numerosity, um, those sorts of requirements. And so um, we plan to take discovery in order to establish that. Well, so I can imagine that 
TSA and DEA have adopted this policy because, in fact, you know, people involved in the illegal drug trade are, you know, using couriers to take cash from one place to another. But th- this this whole process or the procedure involved just seems bizarre. I mean, it's almost like a guilty until proven innocent type standard, or or even worse. I mean, even if you seem to prove your innocence in some cases, you can't get your money back. Uh, even though you haven't done anything wrong and you're perfectly entitled to have it with you. Uh, I mean, how is it that this is permitted? I mean, why haven't courts stopped the government from doing this? Well, uh, it's a a great question. I think courts are starting to rein in the government's uh, abuse of these powers. Um, Part of the reason is uh, historical. Um, Civil forfeiture originally comes from admiralty law. It originally developed from the seizure of ships and cargo where the actual owner of the ship or the cargo wasn't there. You know, they were overseas somewhere. The owner of the ship was in England or Spain or somewhere else. And so you couldn't charge that person with piracy or smuggling or whatever the crime may be. And so um, instead, because the only thing within the, the jurisdiction and the only person they could reach, uh, both practically as a matter of technology in you know, the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, and also just um, as a matter of law, was the ship and the cargo. And so they would seize it and forfeit the, the ship and the cargo based on the illegal activity. Um, that uh, is, is the kernel of the justification for uh, the current use of uh, civil forfeiture, but it's become really unmoored from those very narrow um, uses, you know, back in in the days of uh, uh, pirates and and smugglers and sailing ships. Um, What happened is uh, basically um, this moribund doctrine was revived first during prohibition, but prohibition only lasted briefly. And then again in uh, 1984 as part of the Comprehensive Crime Control Act and and the drug war. And the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984 and some other legislation that accompanied it um, dramatically increased the government's powers to use civil forfeiture in contexts outside of admiralty law. And so now someone driving down the highway or someone traveling through an airport is uh, just as vulnerable to having their property seized as were uh, the smugglers and pirates of old. Um, And accompanying this has been a dramatic expansion of um, law enforcement's power to conduct searches. The the drug war is obviously, the war on drugs has obviously uh, tremendously eroded the Fourth Amendment and a real weakening of the requirements to conduct um, these civil in rem forfeitures. But probably the worst development of all was the creation of the DOJ Forfeiture Fund and a Um, a sister fund uh, at the Department of Treasury called the U.S. Treasury Forfeiture Fund, where all these assets that are seized and forfeited um, end up. And these funds are controlled by uh, the DOJ Forfeiture Fund, is controlled by DOJ, and the contributing agencies, which include DEA and FBI and other other DOJ-related law enforcement agencies. And the money that's put in this fund... um, can only be spent by law enforcement and can only be spent on law enforcement. It's essentially a slush fund. It's not controlled by Congress. It's not, there's no oversight of how the money is spent. And um, it gets spent on all kinds of, uh, all kinds of things. 
some of which are extremely objectionable and, and some of which are, you know, maybe just supplemental uh, law enforcement expenses. But this is money that these law enforcement agencies really like to have. And um, because you sort of get to keep what you catch in this world of civil forfeiture, it creates very bad incentives for many agencies to, to prioritize seizing cash or other assets from uh, people and depositing them into this fund so that they then have access to them and can spend them on whatever they'd like to spend money on. Um, that affects law enforcement priorities. That creates this drive to spend a lot of time doing seizures and forfeitures on highways and airports, train stations, other locations, and frankly, takes resources away from crime fighting, um, from solving crimes, from crime prevention. And um, it's really a, a deeply troubling and unfortunate development. But the Supreme Court in recent years has kind of recognized how divorced current forfeiture practices are from the historical practices in admiralty law. And um, just last year in a case that we brought, uh, Tim's uh, found that a, a civil forfeiture could be an excessive fine under the Eighth Amendment and that the Eighth Amendment applies to the states. That case involved Indiana saying that the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause did not apply to it. And so it could um, forfeit a guy's uh, Land Rover uh, even though he was only convicted of selling a very small amount of drugs and was uh, sentenced to a you know home arrest and paying a, a little over $1,000 in fines, Indiana said, well, we're going to seize your $40,000 Land Rover because you used that Land Rover to drive to the location where you sold the drugs, and therefore it's somehow connected to, um, to, your, uh, to your crime. Um, the Supreme Court pushed back and 9 to 0 said, no, that's, um, this is covered by the excessive fines clause. Didn't decide that that was necessarily an excessive fine, um, but the lower courts in Indiana had already determined that. And it was just the Supreme Court of Indiana pushing back and saying, no, the Eighth Amendment doesn't apply to us. Um, so that, that's one example of the Supreme Court, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court expressing skepticism of civil forfeiture laws. There have been several others in recent years where they've um, issued uh in one case, uh, Justice Thomas wrote a um, an opinion in a in a case where the cert was denied, but he wanted to weigh in and say that although he agreed that you know cert shouldn't have been granted in that case, he was very troubled by the civil forfeiture practices at issue, and you know would like to consider them in, in the future. And there have been hints from other justices, including Sotomayor, that they would be interested in um, in addressing civil forfeiture and confronting. The, the sort of mismatch between the historical precedent and how it's being used today. Well, so Dan, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on what you'd like to see happen in this case, ideally, and sort of how this case works into IJ's project on civil forfeiture more broadly. Sure. So um, I think a lot of people who are not involved in the law or who don't practice law wonder, why don't you just bring a single case challenging the whole thing and just take it all down? And, you know, those sorts of uh, Hail Mary kinds of strategies every now and again might work, but um, they're generally not they're generally not very successful. Typically, you've got to work incrementally to achieve change in the law. And with civil forfeiture, there's lots of different aspects to it that are objectionable. There's the profit incentive. 
There's the seizures of property without probable cause. There's failing to provide prompt hearings for people after they've had their property seized. It goes on and on. And so we are bringing a series of lawsuits challenging each of these things, challenging um, seizures and attempted forfeitures of property that constitute an excessive fine, for example. And the idea is um, to you know, bring an attack on several fronts. So if we win this case and we are able to get a permanent injunction against TSA and DEA having these cash seizure policies where if they see cash over a certain threshold, they seize it, um, that won't end civil forfeiture, but it will stop a particularly pernicious practice that lots of people have fallen victim to and that is driven by civil forfeiture. So this case would be uh, just one of the hopefully many cases that will uh, start to roll back the power that the government has to seize and forfeit your property. And eventually, uh, some of these cases will make their way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the court will have an opportunity to rule on the constitutionality of, of some of these practices. We're very hopeful to get one of our challenges to the profit incentive up to the Supreme Court, because we think um, it violates due process to have um, financially interested law enforcement officials making decisions about, you know, the probable cause, about, um, you know, whether they think the evidence is sufficient to meet the standard, um, the, the preponderance of the evidence standard, because both police and prosecutors in these civil forfeiture cases have these financial incentives. Their agencies get to keep the money, and so they are not really a neutral party and we think that violates due process in the same way, uh, or in much the same way that it violates due process to have a judge um, who, who has an interest in a case. And so we expect some of these cases to get up to the Supreme Court and uh, slowly but surely uh, to roll back uh, civil forfeiture and hopefully eventually bring it to an end. Great. Well, Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show, and I wish you the very best of luck in this action. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Bastard 
Guns and money. <clears throat> 